Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation and leadership all around the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triaka. So before we start this week's show, we also have a little announcement to make. If you are an enterprise innovator or a current or emerging leader who's hungry for more ways to bring creativity to your work or even keen to build a new product or service with your team, we have just launched the Business Design Accelerator. It is a completely self-paced program covering everything from how to understand your customers better to coming up with new ideas for them and building and testing a program prototype before release. There's also lessons in there on how to influence for innovation, which is in short, how to get your ideals approved internally. If you're keen on this and you like the sound of it, just use the code NAKED at the checkout on our website at naked-ambition.com.au and get the first release for 30% off. That's NAKED at the checkout. Okay, on with the show. So welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast where we speak. How are you, Michael? I'm great. Excited to be here. Yeah, really good to see you. So thank you to everyone who has tuned in live today um, on the Naked Ambition podcast where we speak with the leaders who are making an impact in tech leadership and innovation all over the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triaka. Uh, and our guest today is Michael Spiegel. So welcome again, Michael. It's so good that you're able to join us here this afternoon. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much. And it's an absolute privilege to be here. I love uh, the work that you do. As you know, I'm a big fan and it's great <laughs> to be here and share this with you. Awesome. Well, it's always good to have fans on the show. We like that. That's a good start. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell for everyone who's listening um, out there, a little bit about Michael before we jump into some of the questions. So Mike's actually the Exec General Manager at the moment at State Trustees. Um, he's been there for just over 12 months. Yeah, about 18, yeah. 18 months. Um, and his vision is a pretty grand one. He's going to humanise this 80-plus-year-old institution. Um, they're recognising some of the changing demographics um, here in Australia from their customer base and trying to capture some of these new markets as well, um, both from their customers' perspective and employees. So Michael has had a pretty spectacular career both here in Australia and internationally as well. You'll hear some of that come through as we talk about some of the things that he's doing at State Trustees. But just to give you a little bit um, of a lead in here, he was part of the team that established a world first automated antibiotic, antibody, I'm stuffing this up, Mike, antibody facility here in Australia. He's been part of an app startup, a German um, NDA engineering company. He has DNA, that is, and multiple management positions across tech, startup, finance, and banking. And he's also been the non exec. Uh, on quite a few boards across banking, innovation, health, medical, and that actually happens to be how we met each other as well originally sitting on a board. So, Mike, I'd love to jump in, you know, let's get straight into the thick of it because this is obviously a massive time of transformation for state trustees. Um, And as you said, you've got this big vision to humanise this 80-year-old org. Can you tell us what's going on? What's brought this about, first of all? Well, I think it's been it's been a long journey, and, and thank you again for having me. So, state trustees, people might know, remind that I was a public trustee of Victoria, and so we're here for all Victorians to help them with their financial health and, and administration for people who have capacity and for people that don't. Mm-hmm. So, we we're a very diverse organization because of that fact with the people who we whom we help. 
but it's been um it's been a government owned company and it's gone through different iterations and what's brought this about is is a combination of of external and internal factors firstly and i i have to give credit to all the people that have worked at state trustees for so long is that they realized that they were vastly under-resourced they were not able to be providing the service that they wanted to to their clients they are and i know a lot of leaders say this all the time but it is for sure the most passionate workforce i've ever had the privilege to work with in terms of how they support vulnerable victorians and so they understood and knew what was going on and what happened in 2018, there was an ombudsman report who called out a number of, of issues that were happening with state trustees and a number of cases where we, we quite frankly failed a number of people and families. And so there was that was a combination of those events. Um, and and from my, I was brought in shortly after that. And one of the sense I had from the employees, they were very thankful for the ombudsman report because it actually was showing publicly what they already knew and some of the, the stresses they were under. So. The need to transform the organization was already there. I and myself and, and the rest of the executive that were brought in were are, are here to do that. And I think my background was um, something that was attractive to to be able to, to implement some of that, that transformation. Mm. Um, when I was approached for the position and I was approached by some headhunters, I was my first question was why me and who's state trustees? That was literally, I didn't know much about them at all. Mm. And so that was um, that was the first little taste of, of what they were doing. And I was hooked from the beginning. Mm. So tell us what's happened since you've got in there. So, I mean, you've, had, you've got a big vision. You're talking about it was a challenge that you recognised really early on. Give us a flavour for yeah. some of the things you were um, working on. Well, I think that the first thing to recognize was the work that had come before. So just before this happened and as, as a result of some of the issues, the staff had revamped and re-explored their cultural values, which was really fantastic. And, and the cultural values that they came up with um, was care, unity, and passion. Mm. And there are a number of, of aspects to each of those that, that sit under that. And I think that has been something that's been a guiding light for me from the moment when I was still in the recruitment phase to see that passion come through. And that was those values that were developed by the staff, that corporate values that started from the, the ground up. And it really resonated with me. It has allowed me to approach everything that I do at State Trustees under those values. Mm. And I realized coming in that I couldn't be successful here operating the way I've operated in the past, in the fields that I'd operated, in the different countries I had operated. It was a very different organization. It was a different context. And as a leader, I had to learn a lot more first, build relationships, and then come with what I thought were ideas and potential ways forward. And I think that's been a massive learning for myself as well. It's the first time in my career where I think I have truly brought both well my whole self you know that, that kind of corny saying where you bring your mm -hmm. whole self to work mm. I've brought a lot of my who I am as a person um, what's happening with me personally to work I've shown my vulnerability and, and leaned on the people around me and realized very early that this was a complete team effort mm. that was what was going to make us successful 
And for me, it was a revelation. I think I've learned more than I've taught there. What do you mean you couldn't you couldn't be like you were before? What were you like before in other organizations? How did you get stuff done before that you? Yeah, been? well, they, that's exactly it. I was focused on getting stuff done, and yeah, that okay. was really the the main focus. And so, get it done at all costs. Mm-hmm. Hustle, fast, innovative, creative, go, push, drive. Um, but sometimes didn't take in the personal human context all the time. Mm-hmm. So. Not to say that I didn't build good relationships and, um, and, and mentor people and develop people, but I also drove people in ways that probably they weren't ready for. I, for sure, across the, my time, burnt bridges I shouldn't have burned mm. um, and didn't have the wisdom to realize that life and whatever career you're in at the moment is a marathon. It's not always a sprint. Mm. And so what we often think about in tech is this single entrepreneur coming in with this amazing idea and then driving it all themselves and then the world going, oh, my God, look how great they are and thinking that they do it all themselves. And that's not the way things work. Mm. It's it's not you. There there are many, many people involved in every step of the way. And, And that's with every organization, you know. If you look at, I was listening to, to uh, something on Harvard Business Review this morning as I woke up about Steve Jobs and about the people around him that influenced him to make decisions he made, that he fought tooth and nail. He fought tooth and nail to not make the iPhone. Mm. It was the people around him that convinced him to make it. Mm. And that's the fascinating stuff you don't always hear about. Mm. And so now I more want to bring people along and I want to make sure that I'm not going too fast because I have a certain path I want to get go down or that mm-hmm. I have a certain personal goal I want to achieve. And I, mm-hmm. I tell this now to the people that I'm, I'm leading, my, especially my direct reports who my managers, I, they're people who I'm training and coaching and mentoring them to become leaders. I'm not, I'm not mentoring mm-hmm. them as managers, I'm mentoring them as leaders. And one of the mm-hmm. things I tell them, you keep going at the pace you want to go back you're gonna turn around and you're gonna see that you're all alone. There's no one that's come mm. with you. They've, they've pulled out of the race, they've stepped aside, they're having a drink. They're not there with you. Mm. And you have to have them with you. We have to do this together. I need you with me as well. Mm. Cool, so some interesting cultural reflections there. What are, what are some of the things that you and the team are working on at the moment? How are you bringing the team along on some of these transformational projects? Yeah. Um, so a couple of big ones. There's there's number one is we are really um, taking it what we're calling a deep dive into our deceased estates area. So our deceased mm-hmm. estates areas where we act as the executor for estates um, for families who have lost someone. Sometimes those are people who have no family, no one, and they die um, often intestate, what we call mm-hmm. where they have no no will and no one, no clear beneficiary. So we act for them and that's that's our legislative mandate. Mm. And then we act for families who've chosen us to be the administer of their estate. Mm. And because we're the public trustee, we have a unique uh, role in society that we're able as an organization, as a company to act as the executor, whereas normally it has to be an individual, but we're mm. allowed to by, by legislation. And so 
It's a very unique role, but it has been one in which that service hasn't really had a comprehensive review and change for at least a decade, but I would argue even longer when you look at a real comprehensive difference in the way it's delivered. And so we've been doing that re that work and research. And, and I say research because it has started with very in-depth customer insights research, quantitative and qualitative, employee insights mm -hmm. and engagement and stakeholder engagement. And so that's been going on for minimum six months to even longer that we've had, that we've been working with external uh, market research um, partners, with ourselves, with our very closely with a lot of clients and having mm. a, a real deep dive into that area. And as you can imagine, Fiona, it's a time when a lot of people are in a very distraught position. They've just lost someone and they don't know what to do. And mm. we need to help them through a very trying time with something that is extremely technical, extremely legalistic, legislated, compliance driven, and it's not a time when people are able to take in a lot of technical information, but really need someone to partner with them to make sure that every generation in that family is taken care of during that time. Mm. So we're on a real path to make that as simple and as human and as strong a customer experience as we can. And that hasn't always been the case. We've, we've, you know, I think we all understand that we haven't provided that best service to everyone. Having said that, we're providing a really great service to a lot of people now. To give you an idea, we get last month, and this is a trend month on month, we had 14 unsolicited compliments from customers writing to us, to me, to tell how great the service was. And we mm -hmm. had four complaints. And two of those complaints were not complaints. They were within our SLAs. They were within our processes. So they were grievances the customers had, but it wasn't by anything that we had done wrong. So when you start mm. to look at that ratio, because it was reversed, it was by far tens, dozens of complaints a month, if not more. Yeah. So we're turning that around. We're starting to take a very humanistic approach, reaching out to our customers and our beneficiaries much more. The mm. other transformation we're taking is in the, in the digital space. And we're starting to create a lot of digital product and digital services that will enhance our ability to be customer-centric and customer-focused and have mm -hmm. in-depth conversations with people on the important aspects of what we do and our expertise rather than the administrative operational ones. So take a little bit of you know, this, the, the repetitive, non-intelligent tasks that we can automate. We're really exploring how we can automate oh. that. And one of those has been the way we approach that has been through a lot of help with from you guys as well through Naked Ambition is putting my teams through design thinking workshops mm -hmm. and approaching the problems that we're looking at with a very different lens than we have in the past. Mm. So interesting to hear sort of some of that transformation. So you've reflected now on, I guess, two things, the, the pressure, almost external pressure that came with this Ombudsman report, which was the burning platform, I guess, for the organisation. We know that we need to change and you've spoken about there not being a resistance to change actually internally. People welcomed it, if anything, now that that was out in the Absolutely. open, now that we can do something about this and we know where to focus. Um, but I imagine also being, you know, an organisation that was previously government and has been through a lot of those changes 
is there still some tension internally around that kind of old culture versus the new culture, you know, where you want to move towards? I know you said, you know, which I think is a really nice analogy that how do we make sure people are with you, you know, making sure that leaders bring people along with them or they're going to be alone. But at the same time, there's always that tension for every leader of like we, we still have to move quicker than maybe we want to. Yeah, is that yeah. is that happening? What are your reflections on that? How do you get around? Well, oh, that's it? a really good question, and it's very it's the, the fast answer is absolutely. We have all of, all of those tensions, and one reason people resist change is because they focus on what they have in, or or have to give up instead of what they have to gain. Mm. And I think that has been one of the the journeys that our people have been on is is understanding. And and knowing it in the core in their core, there's no there's no one at Sage sees that hasn't known that we we need to change. Now there are different ideas of how that should happen, and we have a lot of those tensions. So one you mentioned was government versus private sector. Mm. So we are a government owned company, mm. but we are still a company. Yeah. And so we have the tensions of being having a responsibility as as a government entity to 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 focus on the well-being of our clients, mm. being Victorians and, and Australians. And secondly, to be able to fund those um, operations and that service so that we can continue to deliver it and deliver it better and improve and, and go down continuous improvement paths. We have tensions between an understanding who our client is. So our client, when it's a deceased individual, is the deceased. Mm. it's not the family mm. yet what i say to that is we cannot speak with the dead we mm. cannot understand what they want anymore we need to we need to to adhere to their wishes mm. but our clients now are their family are the beneficiaries and all the people that are impacted by that person's passing and so we need to engage with them as well mm. and we need to make sure that we're taking care of their needs and wants mm. and they're not always the same yeah they're not even the same between themselves as a family or a unit or friends and family. And it's not the same as what the, the person who's passed away wanted. Mm. And so we have all those tensions. We have tensions between being bringing in revenue and making money and just being a service that people sometimes expect to be free. Yeah. So I, the analogy I use is in some ways, we're very much like a social enterprise. We have this social mission that we're, we're um, focused on. And yet the way that we implement that and the way that we, we do the work we need to do in order to achieve that vision and mission is through um, commercial facing products and services. Yeah. And it's through revenue generation services. Mm. We have tensions between um, different areas. Sometimes we have one area which is wholly focused on providing financial administration services to people who do not have the capacity to do that themselves and another area which wants to be able to provide um, market-facing products financial products and services to people of all different types of socioeconomic backgrounds mm. we have tensions with the fact that 95 percent of our customers speak english as a first language at home and yet we know 26% or more of Victorians are for her speaking two or more languages at home. Mm. So there are so many of those tensions. And mm. I think the, the one guiding light and the glue that puts it all together is a, and a razor sharp focus on the customer experience. And we express that a little bit differently. 
And one of the, the, the models that I've brought in has been, it's, it's a formula, it's my science background coming through, I think. And I, so I geeked out and came up with a formula and the formula is BX, mm. which is brand experience equals CX, which is customer experience raised to the power of EX, which is employee experience. And the way that we talk about this at State Trustees is that we cannot maintain a sustainably high level of customer experience if we do not improve the, the life for our people, that our employee experience isn't mm. a robust, motivational, um, healthy experience. One where we build strong relationships at work, we build strong relationships with our customers. And when you do that, that employee experience has an exponential impact on customer experience mm. and back to the brand. Mm. So the brand is the effect of that employee, that exponential employee effect on our customer experience. Mm. So and vice versa as well. I mean, I yeah. love that. And I think vice versa because it's, you know, get, providing that greater employee experience is far more satisfying for people from an employee experience perspective. Yeah. It's often like an unexpected outcome of a great CX. So one of the, one of the corollaries to this is, and something that I'm, I'm researching is on what makes high-performing teams. And a mm. lot of my recent research points to, and this is supported by a number of, of global studies with, with, you know, we're talking 55,000 individuals and big, big sample sizes and comes from work that Brene Brown has done in Dare to Lead and um, Tim Collins and a lot, a, lot of, a lot of big thinkers in this space. Mm. And what the data is showing is that the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, corollary or parameter that is going to affect a team becoming high performing are the strengths of the relationships in that team are the friendships that those people have with one another mm. it's not having the best grades and results at university and the highest being the number one salesperson or being the number one customer service person it is that team trusting each other liking okay. each other, knowing each other, knowing how to act, who to go to for the weaknesses that they need to get supported in themselves, the strengths they need to rely on from one another. Mm. And that's a really, that's, that's been a big eye opener for me. And it's been, because I've created high performing teams all over the world. And when I look back on them, it was a combination of that culture and those relationships internally. Mm. And but I never was able to verbalize that or understand that for myself. And mm. so we're understanding that more. And that's something that we're really trying to drive and to look at now. How do we create programs to give people the space to create friendships? So mm. should we be sending them on a course on leadership or should we be sending them on a course about how to build strong relationships? Mm. That's the kind of questioning we're starting to do. Or should you just be and, sending them all out for a good day together? <laughs> Maybe exactly, exactly. Should we take? Hey, should we all pause and let's yeah. let's celebrate yeah. more of the things that we're achieving? Yeah. And now with COVID and everybody mm. working away from the office and potentially going into more of a silo mentality, it's more important than ever. Mm. We've onboarded more than I think eighty people during COVID, wow. and I can tell you, the feedback we're getting is that it has been the best corporate induction they've ever had. Mm. This goes from people who are coming in on their first job 
career paths on, on, on a, on a entry-level consultant through to the people who are heading up departments. Mm. And why is that? What do you think you guys have been doing differently? I think we're focusing on, on, our, on people. We're focusing yeah. on getting to know people. We're focusing on the values and why we exist. We talk yeah. about the why a lot. Why yeah. are we here? This is why mm. we're here. So if this why, if this isn't interesting to you, if, if this isn't what you want, don't come here. Mm. The other thing we're doing is the process of recruitment is is very different. In my division, we've we've implemented a structure which is, you know, they they interview with the line managers, then two heads of, and then the last interview is through to me. And mm. each of the way that in candidate gets feedback, direct feedback from each of those those processes. And even if they don't if they aren't successful in the job, we go back to them. And the people who are hiring and people responsible for that position are the ones that are responsible for giving that feedback. Mm. It's no longer our people and culture that give that back and say, thank you for applying. Unfortunately, you weren't successful. No, it's, hey, I want to tell you why I didn't select you. Mm. And here are some of the things that I think you would really help you going forward. And we've had people mm. write us back to me directly to say, your manager gave me this feedback. I wasn't successful. It was the most in-depth feedback I've ever had. And I'm very appreciative of that. Mm. I just got off the line before coming on here with one of the, well, a person who's, who's considering coming in. And he said to me before, before I even had a chance to talk, he said, the process I've been through in this recruitment has been heads above anything I've ever experienced in any of the other positions I'm being offered now. Mm. You guys, I, I feel like I know this organization better than I know the one I just, the one I want to leave. That's amazing to mm. me. That is just spectacular. That, that to me is such an exciting win. I'm proud of myself for, for driving that change, but I'm proud of how consistently our people are embracing it and going, yep, we're going to make it even better than what you thought of at first. Because it was, it was you know, a leader, sometimes you come up with an idea because you're privileged to certain information that other people don't have. Sometimes it's that simple. It's not me mm. being what a fantastic individual I am. It's me having some information. When people see that and take that information and then make it better, and, and they have, my team have made that process better than what I originally thought of, that's really what, that, that's, that's exciting, I think. Mm. Yeah. That's a big one for brand experience as well. Some of those people that they may come back in the end of the day anyway, even if they weren't successful this time. And they've been ambassadors for our company, the exactly. ones that haven't been successful. So important. Um, I just want to come back to something that you mentioned before, which was around this concept of, you know, state trustees as an essential service. So being responsible for the well-being of individuals. Um, what, like, where do you think the organisation needs to go or what would you love to see in the future? Like, what are some of the big leaps or any, you know, to talk maybe whatever you can talk about can be specific mm. projects or areas or if there are things you can't go into in terms of detail. But when it comes to innovation, you know, what do you really want to see happen? Because what's going through my mind here as well is, you know, when you are so, so well positioned to know these customers so intimately and you've said a few times you know we take that responsibility really seriously you know having that sort of positioning you're also you know best place to think about potential other value propositions for individuals to either meet them where they are or take things a lot further yeah are there ex any examples of those or things that you're thinking about or things that just get you really excited 
Yeah, there are there are, look there are a couple that I can't talk about because they literally are would be the first of their kind, um, and they are something that we're in, that are in development now, and we want to we want to hold on to those. But that very fact. So my first answer is, we did an exercise at Exec once, and I don't even remember what the exercise why we were doing it, but the 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 headline I came up with a headline. We one of the exercises we had to come up with a newspaper headline of what what was a success. And the headline I came up with was one of the smallest uh, government-related entities in the world derives, has driven one of the biggest innovation changes globally. Mm. And so number one is I want us, and I'm trying to get us to stop thinking as if we're very limited to only having an impact in Victoria or Australia or anything, we can actually impact the world globally. You know, mm. The world globally makes no sense at all, but you know what I mean? <laughs> we can have a global impact. Yeah. It's something that we can, we can design things that are, that are relevant to many, many more people than, than we maybe originally have been set up to do. And that's not to say our focus goes away from that, but it's just to keep an open mind about how big of an impact we can make. Mm. And you you hit it, you know, straight up when you said we are in a really unique position. The the amount of data and insights that we have to people experiencing yeah. what they experience at a certain point in their lives is incredibly powerful. There's no other entity in in Victoria. Some of the other state trustees will have perhaps access, but I would argue there's we're we're placed because of some of the, the work that we're doing some of the insights work and the data collection and, and information gathering and customer communication channels that we're opening, we're, we're placed to have data that is un, unique. That is mm. the only type of data of its kind that talks about how people behave in certain situations. So that to me is super exciting. And that to me mm. allows us to start to think about bigger broader impacts and new areas that we can, where we can lead. Okay. Absolutely. Um, some of those are, are along the lines of digital innovation. So we're looking at how can, for example, how can conversational AI help us to provide a better customer experience when people engage with us or start to, or are on board with us? How do we help mm. them with that process to make it a much more seamless experience mm. how can we eventually how are we going to help people become financially independent and we use technology to help us do that how do we help people self-serve in a space of that we deal in which is yeah. succession you know succession administration mm. life succession life admin how are yeah. we going to help them really um, manage and take on more of that and educate them to be more financially savvy yeah. and how are we going to help people who are in very dire straits <clears throat> bring themselves out of it mm. we are you know one of the ways that people look at us is we are the executor or we are the the provider of last resort for many yeah. people that no one else wants to deal with yeah there are lots of trustee companies out there, mm. right? But they want the very wealthy clients that have large estates. They don't want somebody who has $1,000 in the estate but has no one that's going to help them. Yeah. And that $1,000 might be the difference between them eating for a while and not eating for a while. 
you know, we deal with such a diverse range of people from the, the people who are living on the street, literally, that not even the banks or their service providers want to deal with anymore. We're the last people to talk to them through I've to had a very, very wealthy. To even share, I've, I've had a very personal experience with state trustees and my brother was one of those people. So he's mm. he suffered from schizophrenia for 20 years and he was, it was the state trustees that were responsible for allocating financing to him, even though there was still parental support and family support. He was one of those vulnerable people who couldn't manage their own finances because of, mm. you know, drug addiction and lots of other problems. And so it was managed by state trustees. And it's, you know, thinking about, you know, when you talk about the the nuance of every single customer and every single situation, I mean, if I even think about my brother in isolation and the sort of stuff. I mean, I think state trustees were actually amazing to him in the most part, but mm. like what people must have had to deal with on the other side of that for, you know, I want my 15 bucks now for my pack of smokes. I want this for this, you know, also knowing where the money's going and those sorts of things. And that's just one case, you know, that yeah. state trustees manage, but that's... our family manage. But, you know, there's so many think about that from a customer experience point of view, the different, like the spectrum of the sorts of challenges Absolutely. that you're dealing with, but also even, you know, how do you how do you model for one person who is also so unpredictable in everything that they're going through? I think which is so um, like an, an, an immense challenge, but even that's what I mean by that that possibility as well, like the innovation possibility so, for the vulnerable. Yes. You know, not thinking about sexier apps or these kinds of things, but like what is that really human innovation to be able to genuinely serve people in that moment or the partnerships, you know, with the other people that are also serving that individual because it's, you know, never done in isolation. So, yeah, and it's so you're, you're spot on that the, the, the I think the default, the historic default about approaching that type of cohort has mm. been do the least. Exactly. Do the bare minimum. Just, yeah. just do whatever it takes to, to, to have it not become too big of a problem. And also to be able to, with very little funding, just make sure we're just keeping a person alive, no matter exactly. what the condition. And thank you for sharing with that, because I know that's a very personal experience. And, and I mm. also know how difficult that's been for you and your family. And I know how difficult it is for many of our, with the thousands and thousands of our customers. And mm. the point that is so dramatic, and I think you explained it so well, is that there is no way to go in and do some insight study and some quantitative research <laughs> and say, okay, now we, we're gonna provide this product Perfect. that services all of those people. Because yeah. your brother is one example Mm. And imagine the myriad of, of, of complications that he has just as a person mm. living with schizophrenia. Mm. Then multiply that out by all the different conditions that we have of, okay. of people who have different conditions. Mm. And we, one of the biggest messages we're saying is there is no model or yes. one size fits all. None of, nothing, what we touch is the same. Mm. Every estate Every person we administer, every family we deal with is unique. Every single individual. Mm. So we can't get quantitative data and create a customer journey that is going to capture all that. We would have to create thousands of customer mm. journeys. The way to approach it that I believe is by taking a customer-centric view no matter what. 
if we say, what is the customer experience here going to be? What is that customer experience, that individual customer, then there's very little we're going to get wrong. We may make mistakes. Mm. We may get things wrong, but the intent of doing it for that customer experience, I think will always guide us towards the right direction and mm. doing the right thing. Mm. And we have to make sure that we take everybody, everybody's situation and experience as unique. Mm. Are there specific partnerships and things that you're that you're considering? Is that sort of one line of the innovation? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. We're we're very dependent. So we're working with a number of different providers. Um, some everything from um, digital marketing through to PR companies who look at behavioral economics, yeah. um, looking at this different stakeholders like DHHS, VCAT, mm. um, uh, Victorian Legal Aid, CODA. Um, we fund a lot of, we have a foundation, so we fund a lot of not-for-profit work in spaces like um, in, in three main areas. One is disability um, and community grants, another is in um, aging well, and another is in mental well-being. So we team up with mm. organizations like Phoenix Australia working on post-traumatic stress disorder for people affected in, in uh, disaster areas. We work with NARI, the National Aging Research Institute on um, uh, establishing senior, senior exercise parks in, in cities around Victoria. Um, we work with small scale uh, organizations and grants for people with disability. Mm. Um, and then we have a foundation that gives out about $3 million a year from bequeaths that people have left in their wills. So mm. a myriad of different partnerships and, and organizations that we support. Mm. Um, and, and we have a very important uh, partnership with many different areas of government, whether it's DTF or DELP or, um, or DHSS, as I mentioned, you know, it's just DHS. It's, it's just a number of, of important stakeholders. Nothing that we can do in isolation. We are absolutely uh, incumbent on, uh, it's incumbent upon us to work with a lot of stakeholders, banks, yeah. um, other financial institutions, lawyers, solicitor, everybody. It's, uh, there's, I, I, I touched on it before around that, that inter- entrepreneurial experience. And I've yeah. set up biotech companies in Germany. I've set up uh, my own mobile app, global mobile app company here. I've done you know, a number of, of different things. It's never, you're never alone. You are, yeah. we are all reliant. And I wish I had learned that early on that there's no such thing as a transactional relationship or experience. Mm. They all are long-term lifelong relationships that you have to build. Yeah. And, and that's the only way you can innovate. I think, mm. I think it's, the, the the startup is it's so important that you have partners to rely on. Yeah. Beautiful. Can we switch gears a little bit actually? I wanna I wanna you just mentioned that some of the things that you've done sort of in the past. What are sort of some of the lessons from you spoke about science? So you've worked, you know, we talked about in labs here, you were part of um, so tell us about establishing the world first automated antibody <laughs> facility sure. here in Australia. Or how is that science more directly? How is that sort of science background 
come to the front with the work that you're doing now? How do you bring those past experiences into the way that even you're leading the team or or the way that you're thinking about innovation at, at State Trustees? Yeah. Well, if I could go back even a little further and talk to you a little bit about my journey, I think it'll, it'll give you some insight. So I started off, I, I, I'm from California, you can hear the accent. Um, I spent my young life um, probably exploring boundaries and pushing boundaries much more than I should have. Um, but it was always a sense of, I have a real curiosity in life. I think anyone that knows me will say I'm a very curious person. I'm a lifelong learner. Mm. All those wonky terms we use now, whatever it is. Um, to be up to be honest, I think I'm just a, a geek at heart. Um, and so I went off to university. I started studying neurobiology. I stopped that because um, I was about to get into organic chemistry and I just got terrified of that concept but I also had a love of languages and cultures and so I started I'd switch gears into Latin American studies did that and at the time I was I, I come from a family that didn't have a lot of money and so I had to put myself through university um, so I worked full-time and in, in, in the university and when I was working full-time I worked with at-risk teenagers um, in a group home in California and that was a very hard experience you know kids who had all been abused all gone through the legal Jail, been in jail, um, had um, had experienced horrific lives, and and our job was to to make them safe and bring them back into society and educate them and be parents to them, be house parents. I was 19 years old, and I was house parent to kids who were 13 to 18. I had eight children, and I did that for about eight years. And what I learned there was really about how important boundaries are. And the only difference to me at that time and them was I didn't get arrested and. Well, I didn't get I didn't get arrested and stay in jail for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. but I could have I could have ended up like them. And to me, I learned about how setting boundaries and how boundaries are so important for not only behavior and values and doing the right thing and self control, but also for creativity. Mm-hmm. One of the the things that I realized early on in my entrepreneurial career was that. It, it is understanding boundaries that allows me to go beyond them. Mm. It's not this, this, for me, it's never been a blue sky to come up with something that never, no one ever thought about. I don't even believe that exists. Mm-hmm. I think what the people that, that come up with so-called blue sky stuff are really have a clear understanding of where the rest of the world has contained themselves. Mm. And so I was doing all that work. I was going through that experience, which was amazing. I was living on, on floors. I couldn't afford my, my dorm room anymore. So I was couch surfing for two years. For two years, I lived out of a backpack. I had a ghetto blaster, a backpack, and a sleeping bag. Mm. And I would just move in. I'd maybe have a place for a couple months, or I'd go sleep on a friend's couch or whatever. And so that whole experience, and I think the, the thing that I have is drive and, 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 and resilience to just keep pushing, keep pushing and get through stuff and live through hardship. And throughout that time, I did a lot of things like I hitchhiked across the U.S. and cycled across the U.S. and did all these kind of living experiences. I fell into, then went to Guatemala for a year and worked in human rights work there during the Civil War in 1994. And that was another really big shifting experience for me. Mm-hmm. But out of that, my girlfriend at the time was went off to do, she was living, she's from Mexico and she was living in um, Mexico and went to do her PhD in Germany at a place called the European Molecular Biology Laboratory. And so I went there thinking for, I go there for a few months 
and I ended up staying for 15 years. And EMBL is a really interesting <clears throat> culture. You go there for nine years, they bring in all these scientists from around the world, mostly from Europe, and you can only stay for nine years. And the idea is you go into this intensive environment where you collaborate on very cutting edge stuff, push boundaries, and then you go back into your home country and bring that knowledge and bring those networks back into it. So it's this, mm -hmm. this um, incubator, so to speak, before that term was even created mm -hmm. of science. And it's one of the most successful, highly published institutions in the world. And so I did that and we started from there, got some technology around DNA engineering. We started a biotech company in Dresden, Germany. And then I went back into that institute in Rome and worked on antibodies. And antibodies, when you produce them, it's a very manual function. You can do maybe 10 a year mm. as a person. And it's super boring. You're sitting in a hood, just pipetting away day in, day out, just same mm. thing, dick, 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 repetitive. So a guy that, that was running the lab came up with a way of automating that. And then that's how this all started. And so we pushed the boundaries on that. And instead of doing 10 per person per year, we could do 100 per person per year. And the value that I brought was, one was on a business development level and on a relationship building and stakeholder engagement. And on the other, it was on um, uh, ramp up and exponential growth. Was I, 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 can't, I come with a very optimistic, optimizing mind. So how do we optimize it? How do we make it bigger? How do we expand it? And so the facility that we set up at Monash and we were brought over by Monash and the Victorian government um, was pushing the boundary to make that um, 100x exponential growth. So we were able to do a thousand per person per year and antibodies are used ubiquitously in science, mm. both as therapeutics and as lab reagents. And so I was flying around the world giving talks and on in big biotech seminars and conferences and things because what we had done would have been first of its kind. And mm. It was very exciting. And that's why, that's why I came here. What it taught me, what I bring from that experience, those experiences and what I bring from the scientific methodology is, is that come up with a hypothesis and then try to disprove it. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this. It's very similar to the design thinking model. It's that mm -hmm. test and learn. I think I've got an idea. I want to see if it's right. So you test it and you try to disprove it and you try to break it down. And if you can't break it down, then you're onto something, mm -hmm. right? In science, it becomes a theory and then goes on from there. But in, mm -hmm. in the real world, it becomes an application. It becomes something we produce. It becomes a product. And we all know now, though, don't just try to have an idea and then launch. Mm -hmm. You're going you're gonna to fall flat on your face. The world's too complicated. Customer needs are too um, integrate customer segmentations different journeys, et cetera. You need to understand what those are. So test and learn, test it out, put your toe in the water, put it into the, into the market and see what, how the market responds mm -hmm. and then come back and make those adjustments. So based on that feedback you get, so that, that kind of virtuous cycle, does that answer your question? That's a, the real fast, the, the fast version. <laughs> um, but I, I'm always, I am focused on, creating on that novelty, creating something new, finding out what differentiates me or us mm. against what's already existing. Mm. And then taking that and then I think what I have now is I understand what that next step is, that exponential growth or even that expansion, mm. very different to the startup phase. Yeah, A lot of great startups fall flat when it comes to building because mm. it's a very different way of working. It's a different um, there's a different set of needs and there are different pressures. Mm.
Great career. Great summary as well. It's such an interesting link. Where do you yeah, want the to thing that I've um, the, the thing I've realized from and there's you know some people who are very important in my life. Another thing they tell me is I've had so many lives, and I mm. really have. And I used to think so. I understand that when I went to EMBL, the, the, the molecular biology institute, I was amongst all of these genius PhDs. Mm. And we have I can't I don't know how many people that uh, Nobel laureates have come out of there. I, I I've lost count. It's it's yeah. it really is. It's this hotbed of brilliance in science. The thing, though, is that it's it's scientists, as we know, and the stereotypes are true to some extent. They're very focused on one thing. They only have very narrow in their capabilities often, mm. and they don't understand a lot of the other parts of the world and other other strengths. And I used to just feel like a complete imposter. You know, like I was in the, I, what am I doing mm. here? I don't have anything to contribute. I feel like a loser. I've done all these different things, but nothing to the depth of all these people. Mm. Now, at this point in my career, those are the very things, those strengths are what finally, and I'll tell you, it was not with, it has not been easy. Mm. <laughs> I feel, I don't know that I want to do all that again <laughs> because it was really hard. It's almost like going through puberty every five, six, 10 years, whatever mm. it was, and having to endure that. But now I feel like I've caught, now I feel like I'm an adult. And so I have the insights quickly that come to me in yeah. certain situations that other people don't, might not have. And I draw on those teenagers. I draw on the people that I know from Guatemala. I draw on the people I met hitchhiking across the US. I draw on the innovation from brilliant science, you know, all that comes to me very quickly now without me even knowing it. Yeah. And so I, I almost feel like, phew, finally it's all going <laughs> off. Yeah. I think that'd be an encouraging message for a few people who are tuning into this because it's, I think like what you're talking about is that, that click, that moment where it's like, okay, these different experiences that I've had now are culminating into this greater wisdom you know, and in something that I'm able to use on a regular basis. So it's a signal of, well, yes, the hard yards, like you said, it's not easy, but I guess it's also a symbol of the role that you are in now, like where you find yourself now. That's always a good signal of, you know, you're in the right role to do the work that you need to do in yeah, that moment. I hope so. I really yeah. hope so. It feels like it. And, and I would say to people, nurture those really difficult times and respect mm respect it and respect yourself going through it. And once you do, it will come back to it. it you don't know it when you're in it. It's impossible mm. to know it, but you will feel and be rewarded by that later on. Mm. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's as simple as just knowing yourself that much better and, yeah. and going through experiences. But the more of those experiences you can have, I think the more value brings to you especially mm. because we are living longer and we're not going to have the careers, mm. just one career anymore. It's, it's like, yeah. you know, we talk about that all the time, but sometimes I think people still get caught up in the, the myth that they're going to study engineering and that's all they're ever going to have to worry about or some, some, mm. you know, physics and mathematics calculations in order to find out how that mechanical piece works. It ain't like that. Mm. Or even if need, people have subscribed to that, not being the same job, you may still think it's going to be within the same sector or, you know, and the truth is actually very different. And it's, again, it's heartening for a lot of people who might have found themselves at that crossroads post last year 
looking at kind yes. of new direction and how do I take things from where I've been. I think it's a nice place to go just to round it out and to get some final thoughts from you. So you talked about you kind of in this moment in time where things are kind of clicking. Where what do you want to do? What does the what's the big vision going forward? Um well, one of the big visions we have and, and that I have for my division especially is that I want us to be the intergenerational partner of choice for, for Victorians. I want, I want us to be a relationship and a partnership that is handed down between generations because I think that's the role that we have to play. That's what State Trustees is here for. One of the visions I have for my people is simply to taste success and to taste what it feels like to work hard at something and see it pay off. And that doesn't mean universally and 100% in all ways. That means mm. to see that we, we do that sometimes and other times it doesn't work out and that's okay. Mm. And so one of the, I'm trying to teach people about when you're in that space of creation and design, as you know, it's a very uncomfortable space. You're in this mix, you have all these ideas, they're coming from different sides and then you're getting different sets of data telling you either correlating or contradicting. Mm. And you don't know, you're in, you're in this zone of not knowing which is the one to grab onto yet. But to be comfortable in that space, to, mm. to know that that's normal, even though it's uncomfortable, because nobody learns, you don't learn from comfort. Mm. you learn from pain and discomfort it's those those moments that are the ones yeah. that teach us and i think um there's this quote by by tony morrison that says if you can surrender to the air you can ride it mm. and i think about that a lot like that that air is all of that flow and all of that creativity and all of that potential that's going mm. that let it go like let yourself go it's it's yeah. it's a very zen philosophy as well mm -hmm. let him embrace it don't try to stop it don't try to silence it don't let it control you either mm. be in control but make sure that you're willing to ride that air ride that wave it's um, a great elizabeth gilbert is another one the author talks about that a lot about this concept of these of ideas or like even huge big social change you know, opportunities being out there in the world and it's just your job to be a vessel. <laughs> yep. Getting kind of bit peace, love and mung beans with all this, but it's, you know, that <laughs> be the vessel, be the channel and the creativity will come through you. Yeah, be brave. That time. That's yeah. the other thing is have the courage. Um, one of the, uh, there's, a, there's a West Coast, uh, West Coast, West Point Cadet Prayer, which is the, the people that are going through the military academy, which is mm. a very academic, it's the ones who are becoming officers and, and leaders in the military. And they say, help me to choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. Mm. And that's the prayer. And that's, that's that knowledge of, you know, make sure that you have the courage to take on what you know is the right way. And what mm. you, whether that's to your values, whether that's to your sense of, of, the commercially right path or the socially right path yeah. or whatever it is yeah. but just have the courage to to, to go down that path because mm. if you choose and i've i've let my fear get the best of me for sure at different parts of my life and and if you know people always ask do you have any regrets yeah sure i've got regrets mm. not that 
they are regrets that I would go back and change because then I wouldn't be me and I wouldn't have the people around me who I do if I did change it. So it's, it's not a question, bless you. It's a silly question in a way. What would you change? Well, I can't change anything because then all of this would be different. Yeah. But there were certain times when I let the fear get the best of me Mm. and I didn't, I wasn't happy with myself. Mm. That's a great one to wrap us up on. Mike, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I've shared so generously. It's really been super interesting. Love when I'm actually, it's really made me think deeply as well about quite a few things. It's been, yeah. Well, that's mutual. And you've, you've been somebody that's been, you know, you've, you've done that for me. You've made me think deeply about a lot of different aspects and you've been someone that I really admire and have um, very, very grateful to know on, on a personal and a professional level. And, and I can't wait to to catch up. It's it's coming due. We haven't caught up in a long time, so I hopefully it's been a while. Let's catch get a up beer in. for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you so much to everyone thank who's you. tuned in today as well. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this. We will pop uh, Mike's details on all the recordings that'll go out so you can get in touch with him via LinkedIn, but I'm sure he's a super friendly guy. If you've watched this and you want to ping him in the messages in LinkedIn, I'm sure he'd love Absolutely. that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you, everyone. Thanks. And thanks, thanks everyone. Have a good day.